Good morning. Let's open our Bibles to Ezekiel. We're back going through Ezekiel this morning. I do want to take a little bit of time, and because it's been a while, refresh our memories just a little bit of where we are in Ezekiel. And actually, it's going to tie into more of a Thanksgiving message, but before we can have the one, we've got to have a good understanding of the other. So Ezekiel chapter 16, the one verse that Paul read for us earlier, verse 49, dealing actually with the sins of Sodom. Look, this was the iniquity of your sister, Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and an abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. Here, the Lord is likening um, the fall of Jerusalem. It has not fallen yet. It is about to be um, taken into the hands by Nebuchadnezzar. The 10 northern tribes have already been taken into captivity at about 710 BC. They wandered away from uh, the goodness that the Lord had once given to them. And they simply, basically, over time, forgot. If you go back to the very, very beginning, God, after 400 years of being in bitter bondage, were miraculously delivered by the powerful hand of the Lord. And the result of this great deliverance, after they went through the Red Sea, the very first order of business is they sang the song of Moses. And it was a song of gratitude. We were in bondage and now we're set free. It was a joyful day. And they were grateful and they were thankful for all that the Lord had done. They did well, they murmured and complained, but when, when Joshua brought them into the promised land, they actually did pretty good for the first generation. Joshua was a righteous man, and under Joshua's leadership, um, they continued uh, staying away from uh, the inhabitants that they had driven out, the Hittites, the Amalekites, and then seven nations that were there. And they didn't get involved in their practices, but gradually and little by little, step by step, they began to forget. And they went from being a very, very grateful people, now they were seduced eventually to the point of not only becoming like the Hittites and the Philistines and the, and the, the ones that were in the land, but they actually became worse than the inhabitants that were there before. So after the kingdom was divided under Solomon, there arose Jeroboam, and um, he ruled the north. And uh, what can be said about the 10 kings of the north is there wasn't one good one in the lot, not one. And the continuing phrase is they learned to do evil in the sight of the Lord after the sins of their father Jeroboam, not one good king. So not only did they forget where they had come from, but they actually got to the point where God had to bring judgment upon them. He allowed the Assyrians in 710 BC to take them into captivity, no more 10 tribes. Time has passed, several hundred years. Now we're dealing with Jerusalem, Judah, and Benjamin. They too are now on a slippery slope the difference between the 10 northern tribes and the 10 southern, the two southern was actually there were eight good kings. Hezekiah was a good king, Josiah was a good king, there were others. And there were reforms. But eventually, after <clears throat> Josiah, um, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah, the last three kings of Israel, it was a downward spiral. And again, there wickedness was such that unless I get into some of the details here, you're not going to read again why God has to bring judgment to his people. If you go back to um, chapter 16, picking up in verse 20, it tells us just how bad they had gotten and just how far they had fallen away. Verse 20 says, moreover, you took your sons and your daughters whom you bore to me and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter? 
that you have slain my children and offered them up to them by causing them to pass through the fire. And in all your abominations and acts of holotry, did you not remember the days of your youth, going back to when they were first delivered from bondage, when you were naked and bare, uh, uh, struggling in your blood? Then it was so after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, says the Lord, that you also built for yourself a shrine, made it on high places for yourself on every street. You built your high places at the head of every road. You made your beauty to be abhorred. You offered yourself to anybody who passed by and multiplied your acts of harlotry. You also committed harlotry with the Egyptians, your very fleshly neighbors, and increased your acts of harlotry to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you and diminished your allotment. So here are the reasons. It had gotten so bad that they were actually offering their children to the god Moloch. And the books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel is God basically enough. Enough is enough. I had went so far with the 10 northern tribes, I had to discipline them. Then I had to take the, the, the two northern tribes and I was patient until you had really crossed the point of no return. And as a result, for the next 70 years, the whole book of Jeremiah and the whole book of Ezekiel basically is a very repetitive message and that is you've gone too far, judgment is imminent, And because you've done worse than the nations that were before you, for the next 70 years, you're going into captivity and there's nothing you can do about it. And don't go around listening to the false prophets who are telling you otherwise, because they're wrong. Now, as as we just think about this for you and I, he's dealing with them. Look at um, chapter 16, picking it up in verse 60. Even though he's gonna implement judgment, even though they've exhausted God's grace as far as it possibly could go because our Lord is long-suffering and he's not willing that any should perish. But here he's pronouncing judgment and he's liking it to the sins of Sodom. But then in verse 60 to 63, he says, nevertheless, I'm gonna remember my covenant with you. In the days of your youth, I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. I remember when you were first saved. I remember when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I remember how grateful you were. I remember the covenant that I made. And I'm gonna deal with you not as the heathen, but I'm gonna deal with you as a family member. Now, when it comes to family, uh, let's let's, uh, identify it with uh, parents and children. Okay, let's take it down that road. And every family, there's... Uh, children who reach that wonderful age of adolescence. <laughs> um, up till that time, everything you said was as good as gold, and and, and um, my dad's stronger than your dad, and and nothing dad could do was wrong, and and mom was perfect, and then adolescence hits, and just the opposite comes. But think about it. If God didn't allow adolescents to enter into a teenager, your 40-year-old would still be at home. <laughs> There's this ingrainedness is, I gotta I got get out of here. What you say is wrong, what I say is right, I am out of here. It's called adolescence. But during that period of time, there's this battle that goes on, and you say, no, you're not, and they say, yes, I am, and they say, you say, no, you're not, and then they say, yes, I am. And it gets to that point where discipline needs to be applied. And, um, but discipline, once it's applied to a family member and, it, and it's over, well, you're still family. And um, you can still get on with, with, with things. And um, you need to be disciplined. I told the first service when I was young enough to figure out how to freak out my mom, I did so I could get, get off the hook for something I did wrong. 
So my big threat was that I'm going to hold my breath and I'm going to pass out. So I'm, I, I held my breath and I, had it, I, had it, I could hold my breath a long time. She thought I was out for the count. And so she'd back down. She mentioned it to my doctor. Doctor said, take a pail of water and throw it over his head. <laughs> well, that took care of that one. <laughs> but the point was, you know, whatever I had done that was wrong, the, the discipline was implemented, and, um, but we're family. You know, I wasn't kicked out of the house. And uh, when it got time to pass the mashed potatoes around the table, pass mashed potatoes, mom, everything's fine. Why? Discipline was implemented. God is dealing with Israel as his family, as his children. And even though they're going 70 years in a captivity, he says, nevertheless, verse 60, I'm going to remember my covenant. You're still my family. And I'm going to deal with you, and I'm going to keep my promises as my family. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, of whom the Lord loves, he corrects. And he scourges every son who he receives. Now, If you endure the chastising, God deals with you as a son. For what son is he whom the father does not correct? But if you are without correction or chastisement, whereof we are all partakers, then you are bastards, or not family at all, and not sons. Furthermore, we've had fathers of our flesh which corrected us. We gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the Father of spirit and live? For they verily, for a few days, corrected us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastising for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercise therein. They're going to be disciplined for 70 years. After 70 years, Daniel 9, verse 1, Daniel prays, intercedes for his people. Lord, everything you said about us was true. We sinned. Everything that you gave us, we deserved. But our time out, our grounding, call it what you want to, is over. 70 years, time to go home. And they did come home. Why? Because they're God's people. But my point is, they had to be disciplined because they had gotten so far and even surpassed the sins of the, the reason that, uh, it's interesting because it said God didn't allow the Israelites to come in until the iniquity of the land had reached its fullness. A lot of implications there. It means that it's sin here, sin here, sin here, okay, I'm not going to allow any more sin. And I'm going to bring in the Israelites and they're going to take over this. Now the Lord is saying, your sins, Israel, even surpass that of the people that were in the land before you. So he likens it to Sodom in our text in verse 49. When we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, we often think of the the sin of homosexuality because of Genesis account of, of uh, Lot being rescued by the two angels. And um, the men of the city saw the two angels and they wanted to have sexual relations with them. And as a result, we equate sodomy, homosexuality, with the sin of Sodom. But if you look at verse 49, it's not even mentioned. The sin of Sodom is not mentioned here, what is mentioned is the worst of all sin, and that is pride. Pride is a sin that caused God's perfect universe to be tainted. It was Lucifer who said, I will be like the Most High. I will ascend my throne to be like the Father's throne. And we have what we call the five eyes. And it was through his pride that sin entered the universe. And then number two, it says they had fullness of food. In other words, they had plenty. They weren't worried about a paycheck. Um, it reminds me of the man who, who was so prosperous that he had to build bigger barns because he had so much. 
And um, she says, I got so much, I'm gonna have to build some bigger barns here. So he tears down his old one, builds bigger barns, and then he says to himself, take soul, take rest soul, you've got many goods laid up for many years, eat, drink, and be merry, don't worry about it. But then the Lord interjects and he says, thou fool. He says, this night, your soul is gonna be required of you. Then those things that you multiplied are only gonna be passed on and you're not gonna be able to take it with you. So here's, that's what they had. They had fullness of food. It breeds this attitude of, I'm well taken care of. I really don't need to pray. I don't need to seek God. And then it says the abundance of idleness. In other words, they had time on their hand. Um, Somebody correct me. I tried to get it right the first service. They told me in this back room what I should have said. Now I'm hesitant to say it because I don't know if I remember. (laughs) Idleness is the devil's workshop. Got it. Praise the Lord. (laughs) I couldn't come up with the second part of that for nothing. The whole idea is when you have time on your hands, you can get yourself in trouble. And um, people often do. Idle, uh, abundance of idleness. And in the last part, neither did they strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. They were unregenerated, self-seeking, self-serving, concerned only about number one, and I could care less about the other guy. You got a need? Be warm and filled. I'll pray for you. My Bible says that if you have it within your power and you have the means and you see a brother or sister who has a need and you don't meet that need, then that's sin on your part because you have the power to do the right thing and you're not doing it. Sort of falls under the category of, am I my brother's keeper? What's the answer to that question? Absolutely. If it's within your means, and you see it, and, and, um, and you, you don't meet it, well, that's what they weren't doing. They, they, had, they could have cared less. It's your problem. And, um, and no concern for those that were really in need and lacking. Those were the sins of Sodom. <clears throat> so with that much of a background, what we have in the book of Ezekiel and Jeremiah is judgment is imminent, the reason because of the multitude of their sins. I, per, I chose this particular verse because I think it sums it up. Verse 49, the sins of Sodom. Not just homosexuality, but the other ones, pride, a fullness of food, abundance of idleness, and they could have cared less about anybody else besides themselves, and they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. And that is... Hebrews 12, righteous judgment. But again, having said that, remember, this is still family. What we have here is correction that is needed and it needs to be implemented and it will be implemented for the next 70 years. All right, switching gears a little bit here. Uh, This week we entered into the holiday season. We're celebrating Thanksgiving And usually, you know, family and friends get together and sit around and carve up the turkey and somebody's asked asked to pray or some families, they go around and say, well, what are you thankful for? And uh, everybody gets to say, well, I'm thankful for this and I'm thankful for that. Some people say, well, I'm thankful that I've simply got a roof over my head. That's what I'm thankful for. Um, I'm thankful that I have family and friends, or I'm thankful that I have a good job. Um, And Lord, we're just thankful for the food we're about to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. And we call it Thanksgiving. But the, the, the crux of what it has turned into, just like the children of Israel started out so grateful for being delivered from bondage, that they sang these wonderful worship songs, the song of Moses. They've drifted away, so has our nation, drifted away from the very purpose and meaning of what Thanksgiving 
biblically from a Christian perspective really is all about. Thankfulness and true thankfulness can only really be achieved when a person comes into a personal relationship just like the Israelites in bondage, under control of sin, but because death passed over and the blood was applied to the door, they lived. And as a result of that deliverance from bondage, what could they do? They couldn't do anything except sing a song. So their song was a result of the work of the blood that was shed by a lamb, and that's what made them thankful. That's what caused them to sing. I believe the root of any thankfulness that we have um, has to stem from the work that Jesus accomplished on Calvary's cross. Good place for an amen. All right, Romans 1, 21. Um, These are those that are faking it. As Paul Simon would say, they're not really making it. (laughs) Because uh, he's speaking to non-believers now. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. And it says, neither were they thankful. They became vain in their imagination and their foolish hearts were darkened. This to me is a very revealing verse. First statement I want to say is, the word of God is inerrant and, 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 and it is without um, any um, mistakes. It, is, it means exactly what it says. And um, here, what it's telling us, that there's a group of people that they knew God. In other words, it's saying that everybody knows there is a God. That's what's being said here. Well, Dwight, what about an agnostic? What about an atheist? Well, you show me an agnostic, and I'll look him eye in the eye, and I'll call him a liar. And uh, the basis, he said, well, you can't call me a liar. I am what I am. I said, well, you can say that. But you see, this book right here is without error. And what it tells me is that you know that there's a God. And it tells me, it not only tells me that you know that there's a God, but that you're suppressing that knowledge um, in unrighteousness. And not only that, even though you knew because of creation that he exists, you're suppressing it and you're not thankful. And you're not thankful because the simple fact of the matter is you don't want anybody telling you what to do and you don't want anybody ruling over your life. So all you have to do is just say, I don't believe there's a God. But you're suppressing what the Bible clearly says. All you have to do is look at the sunset. All you have to do is study a piece of DNA. All you have to do is any common sense thing, we use common sense, and you have to come up with a conclusion. There is a, a creator who created everything that is. And here it says they are without excuse um, because of the very fact of creation. Thanksgiving uh, should be that we have an awareness that we've been forgiven of something so great that the only thing um, that can be a result of accepting this free gift as we've gone from pride-filled, all about me, number one, to this person that's grateful, who knows full well we deserve everything that God's righteous judgment, just like the children of Israel. As they sinned, they deserved judgment, but they were still family. And God actually wants us to be thankful for what he's done. And with that, I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 17, And while you're turning, let me just give you a little background to Luke 17, verse 11. In Jesus' time, of course, was the lepers. And um, last week when I got back from Israel, I was walking around the church and I was going, unclean, unclean, unclean. (laughs) You wanted to stay away. Well, if you were a leper, that's what you had to do. You had to stay within shouting distance away uh, because leprosy was extremely contagious and once contracted, it began to eat away at the flesh, eventually the nerve endings, 
eventually to the point where you have no feeling in your fingers or your toes. And long enough, it eventually led to death. In Jesus' time, leprosy is not a curable disease. That's why they had leopard colonies. Well, it's interesting in the book of Leviticus that even though leprosy is uncurable, there is a law that says in the day of the cleansing of the leper, there's instructions to verify that indeed he has been miraculously healed of this disease. It says you'll go show yourself to a priest and he will examine you for seven days and he will look at your hands to see if they're clear and clearing up. And after that seven day period of time, the priest and only the priest is the one who has the authority to redeem and redeem and say that you are no longer a leopard and you're clean and you're part of society again. But it's not curable. And yet in the law, there's provision for the cleansing in the day of the leopard. Now I have to tell you that story because what we're gonna read isn't gonna make sense unless you know Leviticus. So in verse 11, it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a certain village, there met him 10 men who were lepers who stood afar off. And he lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And so when he saw them, he said to them, go show yourself to the priest. Now you know why. Because that was part of the law. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. They weren't cleansed when Jesus first talked to them. It's only after they were obedient, believing that Jesus was going to do it. So they're walking. I can just picture walking with these guys. They're walking, and one guy's looking at the other guy, and he goes, your acne is really clearing up really quick. <laughs> and the other guy's looking at his hands and going, my hands, they're, 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 they're getting better. And uh, as they went, it says they were cleansed. And one of them went, when he saw that he was healed, he returned with a loud voice glorifying God and fell down on his face and, and his feet giving him, what? He gave him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. Let me just stop here. Samaritans and Jews, of course, did not get along. And then to the Jew, it was always used in a derogatory term. Whenever Jesus talks about a Samaritan, it's always in the affirmative. The good Samaritan. Uh, the high priest and the Pharisees, well, they walked by the guy that was all beat up. Not the Samaritan. The Samaritan had compassion on the guy. Put him on his donkey, bound up his wounds, took him to the inn, paid the innkeeper, and said, it might come to more than this, and when I come back, I'll pay you. And so that's where, why they call him the Good Samaritan. Here Jesus points out, 10 guys were healed, but the only one that came back to say thank you was the Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, well, uh, I thought there were 10 that were cleansed. Where are the nine? Now what's being implied here? The Lord is actually looking for the other nine guys to come back and say thank you too. They didn't. And he said to them, arise, go your way, your faith has made you well. Well, what's your point, Dwight? Well, there's nothing we can do to add to what God has done as far as my salvation is concerned. But he does tell us to offer unto him the sacrifice of what? Praise, thanksgiving. What's thanksgiving all about? Thanksgiving is I've been cured of a disease called sin. There's absolutely no cure for it in this planet. It was contracted through Adam, and we'll get there in just a little bit. And there is no cure on this planet except one. And that is only, and that's why we say Jesus is the only way. We've been washed by the blood of the Lamb, and there's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved because Jesus is the only one who shed his blood and his blood is the only one that can take care of sin. Amen? Now what should that create in us? I'm doomed to death 
I have a disease that's incurable. And Jesus is the only one who can do anything about it. And so we enter into this period of time that we call thanksgiving. But like Israel, we have drifted so far away of what the meaning of thanksgiving and real gratitude. Real gratitude comes when you can only have a gift that you can't repay. And all you can say is thank you, just like, just like the, um, the leper here. Um, these days, um, <laughs> they call it Black Friday, a day after Thanksgiving. What is Black Friday? Well, it's basically you, you shop till you drop. <laughs> and that's what it's become known for. And um, interesting to me, they call it Black Friday. I thought, that's interesting, black. That doesn't sound good. All right, I get it. So you go from being into red to being into black. I get that part of it, okay? But it's just interesting to me. They call it Black Friday instead of Good Friday. And they've taken uh, something and um, gotten so away from what it should be that we've turned it into this thing where now you have so many shopping days until Christmas, and your best deals are going to be Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I remember growing up on a kid. On a kid? As a kid. <laughs> Actually, I was, uh, I was the oldest brother, so I was on most of it most of the time. And, you know, we had Thanksgiving, and people went shopping on Friday and Saturday, but not Sunday. Everything was closed, even then. And my point is, we're drifting. And we're drifting farther and farther and farther away. We can't call it Christmas anymore. It's happy holidays. Some places you can lose your job if you wish somebody a Merry Christmas. Say what? And um, talk about missing what, what gifts are all about. What's everybody involved in doing right now? Well, everybody's out shopping for a gift. And then you're going to open it up on Christmas morning, and that becomes the focal point. And I'm talking, I'm not talking, I know I'm talking to the choir here this morning. But as a nation, we have drifted so far away of what Christmas is supposed to be all about that it's turned into, I get a, I get a gift. We're thankful, and we say thank you. Thank you for this black tie. <laughs> I, just, I just love it. It's the most beautiful black tie I've ever seen in my entire life. And, um, and then we forget about it, and where's the next present? You know, it's like Rolfie on Sunday morning. He rip, rips, up what, rips open one, and he goes, whoosh, throw away the socks, what's next? You know? And you just, you just pile your way through and, and, until you've gone through the pile. But they miss what free gift is all about. Turn with me to Romans chapter five. Romans five. Let's talk about the real free gift. But we need to lay a little bit of a foundation. Let's pick it up chapter five, verse nine. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Therefore, just as through one man's sin, that's Adam, entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. So even though man was still gonna die because of his sin, it wasn't imputed because the commandment said it have not yet been given. So there was no law that said thou shalt not steal. So you had to have the standard so that when you sinned, well, God says you can't sin. 
That's what that means. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even even those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. And then this very interesting note that Paul just sort of throws in there, and he says, who is a type of him who was to come. He's equating Jesus to Adam. And he's saying that Jesus, that Adam, is a type of him who is to come. And my question is, well, how is he a type of Adam? And as I think it through, um, I want to put it sort of in the love context because I think the gospel is a love story. When we're in Israel, I'm at Shepherd's Field, I wanted to tell a love story. So in the Shepherd's Field, you have the love story of of Naomi, I mean Boaz and Ruth. In the same field, you have King David raising his sheep. And in the same fields, you have the shepherds uh, seeing the angels pronouncing the Lord's coming, all in the very same, same spot. But how is Jesus a type of Adam and Adam a type of Jesus? Well, the Bible tells us that it was not Adam that was caught in the deception. It was Eve that was deceived. When the Lord said, you can eat of any tree of the garden except that one over there. And Eve was going, which one is that now? And so what happened on her own, without her husband's covering, she trips off at night and she's beguiled, the Bible says, by the serpent. And she ate of the fruit and sinned. Now something happened. Adam was not there. But I believed because the Bible says after they sinned, they had to, they knew they were naked, implying what? They weren't naked before. I believe they were covered with light. That's just Dwight's speculation. They were covered with something, but I believe it was light. And as soon as she ate of that piece of fruit, her nakedness was revealed. So imagine coming home saying, honey, I'm home. (laughs) Honey, you're looking different. There was a noticeable difference with Eve. And believe me, it didn't take Adam long to figure out what happened. He knew what had happened. She had been beguiled. He wasn't there. He wasn't um, the one in the Bible clearly says that Eve was the one that was deceived, not Adam. So what happened? He had to make a conscious choice at that point. This is his bride. And she's going to die now. She's got a death sentence on her. Adam's living forever, but not Eve. I believe of his own free will and his love for Eve that he ate. And in so doing, he became naked. So when I read here that Adam, in the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come, Jesus, who is innocent, of his own free will, chose to taste death for each and every one of us. Why? Because he loves his bride, the church. And he did it of his own free personal will. So we have just just thrown into Romans chapter five. It goes on to say, but the free gift is not like the offense. It says, for by the one man's offense, many died, that would be Adam, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of this one man, Jesus Christ, should be to many. But notice it doesn't say to all. It says to many. So much for universalism. So much for Rob Bell and love wins and everybody goes to heaven. So much for reincarnation and you'll get it right eventually. No. He died for the sins of many. And the gift, this is where the gift comes in. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from the offense resulted in condemnation, but notice the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness 
will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in a condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many were made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I came here because of this free gift that was freely given by a choice motivated by love for a bride and because of that love he imparted it freely. Now if I give you a free gift, I I used a a man's illustration in in, in the first service so I gotta think of a girl's illustration here. How about, um, any guys watch football yesterday and see Joe Namath get his mink coat? I thought that was weird. <laughs> Where did that come from? I don't know. They just sneak out from the back sometime. And I go, oh, what is this? I was trying to think of a, something a girl would like, a mink coat. But girls aren't into mink coats anymore, are they? Girls, what are you into? What do you really like? Brand new car? How about brand new? Chocolate. <laughs> Duh, how did I not know that? Thank you, honest answer. All right, I just bought you a chocolate factory. I mean the whole nine yards. You got every kind of chocolate you can possibly imagine. And um, um, I mean this thing is worth a half a million dollars, this chocolate factory. And it's all yours. Here's Here's the deed, you got all the chocolate you want for the rest of your life. Now, it's a free gift. I gave it to you. No strings attached. And you go, oh, that Dwight, that was nice of you. Um, here's 20 bucks. Uh, you just totally offended me. <laughs> because what I gave something that was very, very valuable, and you want to give me 20 bucks now? It sort of takes the freeness away from the gift. Are you guys tracking with me? So what we have here is it's absolutely free. There's no way we earn it, deserve it, any of the above. It's free. In the, in the first service this morning, Bjorn and Jennifer dedicated little Everett um, to, to the Lord. And, and um, we were talking about why we have baby dedications instead of baptisms for children. And I explained that if we baptized babies, it would actually give the impression that there's something other than a free gift that's needed for salvation. Both the mainline Protestantism and the denomination that I grew in, they equate salvation with infant baptism. Well, that's adding something to a free gift. Either it's works or it's free. And you can't have it both ways. And so I explained the reason we dedicated this precious little 10-week-old boy 10 weeks to the day. I explained to the group here, we do it so that they understand it's a dedication, we're dedicating. That that child is gonna have to come to his own conclusion when he reaches that age of accountability. Now when we're in Israel, we had to stand in line to get up to the Temple Mount. And we must have watched at least four or five, six bar mitzvahs. Talk about a party. Man, they party hardy. And it's all about this one 13-year-old boy and all the attention is on him. And he's soaking it up. Well, what's so big, what's the big deal about 13? Well, in Judaism, they determine that it's at that age. They're mature enough now to study with the adults. They know what is right and wrong. And so I think it's different for some. I think God is the one who draws the lines here of when you're accountable and when you're not accountable. But to tell me that a six-month-old baby understands salvation, no way. And it's gotta be something that you freely, 
whosoever will let him freely come. And you just don't have it figured out in six months. So my, my point is, it's a free gift, and Romans 5 clearly lays it out <clears throat> that as a result of that free gift, and it's not just gift singular, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, we have, of course, the gift of salvation. But now to impart this gift to the rest of the world, Jesus invested himself in 12 men for three years. Now the gospel needs to go into all the world, but we can't do it in our own strength. We need God's Holy Spirit living in us and working through us to accomplish this mission. So we read here in in chapter four, verse seven, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Please notice it's singular. Christ's gift was what? That he paid the price and it was a singular work. And then it says, here he quotes now, uh, Paul quotes Psalm 68, this is a prophecy. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and he gave what? Gifts, plural, to men. Well, what's that all about? It's talking about the day of Pentecost. And it's talking about that Jesus said, unless I leave, I can't send the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, uh, he will lead you into all truth. And he will empower you to be witnesses here in Jerusalem, Judea, and the innermost parts of the world. But this is what he told his disciples before that. He says, guys, don't go anywhere. Don't leave town until you've received the power. So what we have here is gifts, plural. When the Holy Spirit comes and he gives gifts, um, we're told that this is something that is done by the Holy Spirit himself. I'm, I'm quoting 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11. But one and the same spirit works all things. And then it says, distributing to each one individually as he wills. In other words, there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And one of the works of God the Holy Spirit is to decide what gift you are going to give. Every Christian who's born again has a gift. Some have more than one. But here it says it's the Holy Spirit that distributes to each one as he wills. And so we read here, verse 8, Nevertheless, he ascended. What does it mean that he also first ascended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended above all the heavens, and he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. These are just a small portion of the gifts. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ until we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ, so that we should be no longer children that are tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine that blows through town by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive. One of the things Jesus warned against in the last days, look out, there's gonna be doctrines of demons. And gang, unless you know this book, unless you have the Holy Spirit, you're gonna be tossed around, back and forth, to and fro, and you'll have no solid foundation. You know this book? You'll smell a phony a mile away, because it just doesn't line up. And so what we have, and... um, I need you to turn to Matthew chapter 25 at this point. Matthew 25. Jesus told a parable about these gifts. And it's important that we understand the parable because it has everything to do of how we're gonna spend eternity, especially the first thousand years. That's what this parable is about. So Matthew 25, picking it up 
in verse 14. Um, 25, not 26, right? Matthew 25, 14. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who calls his own servants and delivered his goods to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one. And to each one according to his own ability and immediately he went on his journey. So we have a picture of um, Jesus leaving. But as he's leaving, um, he's giving talents that he expects his stewards to be about their father's business. And then when he returns, they're going to have to give an account. So he gave one five talents to another two, verse 16. Then he who had received the five talents and traded with them, he made another five more. And likewise, he who had received the two, he gained two more. But he who had received the one went and dug it in the ground and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, now we're talking the second coming, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with, with them. And so he had, that had received the five came and brought another five talents, saying, Lord, you, you delivered me five talents. Look, I've given five more talents besides them. Now notice what he says. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I'm gonna make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Here's the heart of this parable. The Lord has given to us um, gifts. In Matthew 5, it says, let your light shine before men so that they can glorify your Father when they see your good works. A city set on a hill can't be hidden because it's shining. He says, so let your light shine. And he says, while you're doing it, when I come back, I'm going to determine this guy was faithful. And um, what I entrusted to him, he actually added to it. And uh, he were faithful in little. He says, well, I'm going to make that guy faithful over more. Where? In the kingdom. Verse 22, and he who had received the two talents came and said, Lord, well, you gave me two talents, and I've gained two more talents. The Lord said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you rule over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. So the Holy Spirit decided to give this guy five. The Holy Spirit decided to give this guy two. And they were both faithful. The Lord says, okay, now we're going into the kingdom and you're gonna have fullness of joy. Now here's the question. Is everybody in heaven gonna have fullness of joy? Yeah, absolutely. But I think the guy that had the 10, he's got a bigger basket. Is he still fullness of joy? Absolutely. Is he gonna be jealous, the guy that only had two that made four? Is he gonna have fullness of joy? Oh yeah. Is he gonna be jealous of the guy that got five? No, because there's fullness of joy that's there. So the last guy, these two both knew their Lord, but now we're introduced to the one who went and hid his master's talent. Verse 24, then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you're a hard guy, reaping where you've not sown and gathered where you've not scattered in. My Lord, a hard man. Hmm. My Lord said, come and learn of me because I'm gentle, humble, lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. You know what that tells me? This guy doesn't have a clue who Jesus is. Not, not even close. And um, he's the kind of man who's brought up in a religious institution who thinks God's mad at him. And he's just waiting for him to step out of place and God's gonna take his son and go, just like that. And we all know people who think like that. They don't know the grace and the love and the gentleness of our Lord. This guy does not know the Lord, is my point. And he says, I was afraid. And most people who don't know God in religious institutions are afraid. 
And he went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have it. But the Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reaped where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. Therefore, you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back, at least I would have had the interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance, but from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And then he says, and cast the unprofitable servant in outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This could only be a reference to what Jesus referred to in Matthew 25, with the judgment of the nations. And uh, if you look at verse 40, it says, these will go into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. This was a man that wasn't saved. But that I might make my point really, really clear, you need to go to 1 Corinthians chapter three. And I wanna take you to the judgment seat of Christ where it actually gives us an account of the day that the Lord is talking about. We call it the Bema seat. And we call it the Bema seat, we get it from the Olympics. It's not a judgment for your sins, but it's a reward banquet in the same way that when you compete in the Olympics, some win silver, some will win uh, um, gold, some win silver, some win bronze. And um, this is what this is referring to. Let's pick it up. This is the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, Let's pick it up in verse 11. For no other foundation can anyone lay that that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on his foundation, gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will declare it. Well, one guy had five, he got five more. One guy had two, he had two more, and the day declared it because it will be revealed by fire. And a fire will test each one's work, what sort it is. Now, if anyone's work, which he has built on, endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, in other words, his whole life, his whole Christian life, it's all burned up, he has nothing to show for it. He will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. Notice it says he's not cast into outer darkness. What doesn't he have? Well, he doesn't have anything in heaven. But is he still saved? Absolutely. Let's take it a step farther. Do you think he has fullness of joy? Believe me, if I just get through the gates, I'm gonna have fullness of joy. <laughs> All right? And at his right hands are pleasures forevermore. You know, I don't know. Paul says, I don't even judge myself. My flesh is so tricky. I give up on trying to judge my own self. When it says here it's gonna be revealed by fire, what does that mean? We're told to judge nothing before the time. And I'm not talking about exposing false doctrine right now. We are to expose false doctrine, amen? Well, you're being judgmental. No, I'm being discerning, and there's a big difference between the two. Now, I could um, have a brother who wants to volunteer, do some work around the church. I say, okay. And um, I don't know his motive. He might want to do it to the Lord, and that's his heart, that's in his heart. And um, then again, he, he might want some attention. I don't know. So my Bible says, I'm not to judge, because I can't look in this man's heart. I don't know why he's doing what he's doing. He's doing it. But that's the Lord's job on judgment day, when this guy, Paul said, it's the love of Christ that constrains me. Paul said, I do what I do because I love Jesus, period. And, but for me to judge you on why you do what you do, that's none of my business. That's the Lord's business. I'll tell you what is my business. If somebody comes in with another doctrine, that's another gospel, it is my job not only to expose it, but to name names. And you can call me judging all you want, but I'm not. It's clearly a matter of discernment, and Paul, throughout the New Testament, most of what he did was defend the true gospel against the false gospel. We mentioned it last week. He says, I warned you guys. 
three years, day and night, that after my departure, what's going to happen? Wolves are going to creep in. They're going to want to take disciples after themselves. Well, Paul, that's not very nice of you to mention that. Yeah, it was. It was a clear warning. A heads up not to let this enter in. All right, let's see if we can wind this up this morning. We find here that um, Peter talks about your gifts. It says, as each one has received a gift. All right, are you in each one? All right, you've received a gift. Minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And know that your gift isn't any more important than the next guy. First Corinthians says that the eye can't say to the hand, look, I can see, you can't, I'm better than you are. And the hand can't say to the foot, look, you stink, You're, you got smelly socks, and I'm better than you are. No. It says that all these parts collectively work together for the, for the furtherance and the fullness of that we're one body. And that all these gifts working together make this beautiful harmony that builds up the body of Christ. And um, that's what Peter is saying here. You've received a gift, use it as good stewards for the manifold grace of God. Israel's main sin was pride. And so God had to bring judgment. Do we see the parallel today in America? Oh yeah, we're drifting. Do we see as it, um, um, Romans tells us, Um, also that God is going to judge again. That judgment is imminent because of our nation's sins. Romans 1.18 says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth, there it is again, in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifested in them for God has shown it to them. How? How? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuses. I want my day in court. You're going to get it if you're not saved. The Bible says, and the books were opened. You know what's in the books? Every deed you ever thought, did, or applied. It's all written down. I don't want my day in court. Give me grace. Amen? I do not want what I deserve because I know what I deserve. I want the free gift. And if the Lord is just wanting a grateful heart, deal. <laughs> but although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. They professed to be wise but they became fools. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image like corruptible men, birds, and four-footed animals and creeping things. Isn't that what Ezekiel's all about? You guys are making these idols. You're putting them on the hill and you're worshiping them. They have eyes they can't see. They have ears they can't hear. They have feet and they can't walk. And you worship them, that's dumb. We see the same sins of Israel in America today. Oh, they take on different forms. But fill in the blank, guys, as we close up this morning. If, um, if there's anything that comes between you and your first love, it's an idol. I don't know how to say it any more plainly than that. The Lord says you're to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and being. This is the first and greatest commandment. So if there is something this is, this is one thing that's great about this time of year and coming to church and having a straightforward Bible study. It keeps us front and center from getting caught up with the trappings of the world in which we live. So um, whatever that is, if it is, if Jesus is at number one, then you got some soul searching to do and some reprioritizing that needs to take place. Uh, we're in this world but that doesn't mean we have to be a part of it. And I'm not talking about you guys who need to go shopping this afternoon. We're, we're talking about priorities in your heart. Is everybody with me? I don't want to be Scrooge up here this morning. Well, just made it to afternoon. <laughs> but the Lord says this in 2 Corinthians. 
Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Anything can be an idol. If it's something that's taking first place in your heart other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And instead of pride and self-esteem, you know what's going to happen? When you see it's all about what he did, and um, it'll, it'll produce one thing in your heart, this attitude of gratitude. And the only thing that he wants from you is for you to offer to him the sacrifice of praise. And that's what Thanksgiving is all about. And unless you understand that you've been forgiven of something that you can never, ever repay, and you're not going to make it outside of him, you won't be grateful. But when you see that he did it all and there's nothing you could do to add to it, then you become very grateful. And you fulfill the only thing that he's asked for you to do. Do you know what? Uh, and I'll close with this thought. Um, I've had this question asked a hundred times to me. Dwight, how do I know the will of God for my life? And this is what I tell them. First Thessalonians 5.18. First of all, I, I tell them, I don't know. <laughs> but this much I do know. And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What's the will of God for your life? That you give thanks. That's God's will for your life. It says, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise and be thankful unto him and bless his name. And finally, in this crazy world that we live in, that we can have peace in the midst of this storm. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you were also called in one body, and be ye thankful. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thanks for your word this morning. As we enter into the holiday seasons, Lord, give us a reality check that we can keep our priorities straight where you tell us. Make sure we're seeking first your kingdom because... You tell us wherever our heart is, that's where our treasure is also. Lord, as we think of Jesus being a type of Adam and actually willing to become man because he loved his bride, knowing that it would cost him, we thank you so much that as our bridegroom that you loved us so much that you paid the ultimate price so that we could be clothed in your righteousness and not be found naked. We're, we're grateful this holiday season and we give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name, amen.